So hey everyone, my name is Josh Williams. I'm the lead pastor here at the Elm City Vineyard. Uh, one of the great privileges of my life these days, in addition to being a husband to the one on the left uh, and a father to these two, is actually something that Patrick just mentioned. Um, it's being a Bible study leader uh, in the different Bible studies we do, not all of those, this would be a dream, uh, but the prison ministries we do in Connecticut. Um, Patrick said that we did one, we do one in Niantic, which you can see it's the one called York, uh, bottom uh, to the right, then the one in New Haven, which is uh, on Whaley Avenue. Uh, these are places where God does amazing work, and I'm so glad that Patrick started by praying for these ministries, because our hope would be that at each one of these, whether it's ECV, a partner organization, or a church we don't even know of, that they would be doing amazing Bible studies, amazing times in the Word of God of prayer, uh, with people all throughout these prisons and jails. It's our specific hope in this season that we would praise uh, for Cheshire and Manson, which is a, a juvenile a jail. We would love to get into those to do a Bible study. They're a little bit closer to us in, in New Haven. But these are amazing places to do God's work. But around three years ago, uh, that was not a reality for us to be there, and I don't think I even knew as much about these prison ministries at all. Uh, when we got an invitation to go to York, uh, the women's prison, um, I was really nervous. I've never been to prison. I'm not a woman. I haven't struggled with substance abuse, housing instability, habitual patterns of lawlessness, kind of getting back in and back out and back in and back out. And I wondered how would I connect to these women? How would I be able to connect with them? ECV wasn't the first religious program that had been in the prison, and of course we won't be the last. And most of these women I had imagined, and it turns out I've realized now, had been to some kind of religious service before. Many knew the name of Jesus, whether that was uh, a figure of religion or of Christianity, or perhaps it was their own personal faith, um, but they kind of knew of Jesus. And while that knowledge of who Jesus was, like the name of Jesus, while that was powerful for me, I didn't know what that name alone would mean to these women. Just like, what would it mean to say the name of Jesus? I wasn't sure. In fact, many folks inside the walls of the prison, and I'm sure many folks outside of it as well, perhaps even in this room, um, they know Jesus' name, but they're more familiar with the hypocrisy of Christians or the blind eye the church can have towards those who are incarcerated, perhaps marginalized in other ways. Sometimes people know the name of Jesus, but they know something else that makes them turn away or turn aside. What did I have to share? Like I said, I was pretty nervous. So that first week for Bible study, we uh, came as a few of us, and we waited and waited and waited. We were in the room where like, the Bible study was supposed to be, but no one came. And then about 10 minutes later, we had one person, one woman. She showed up. She's like, is this it? We're like, you, t you tell me. Like, I don't know. Like, maybe. I guess so. And we shared a story from Jesus' life. But before we did that, we shared something that we kind of had hoped to say. And we maybe were imagining a few more women than one as we said it. But just saying something that's true about the story of God. That God is here at York. That God created everyone here at York, from correctional officers to the women who are incarcerated. And that God is bigger than any addiction. God's bigger than any sentence. 
God's bigger than any judge, that God is here, and that God wants to rescue all of us because he loves us. And we see that love so profoundly in the person of Jesus because he lives for us and he died for us. He never turned against us. And now through Jesus, we can be rescued and come into something, a new reality called the kingdom of God that's coming towards us, advancing even now. There's a new creation at work, a new redemptive way that we can move, that God moves, that the world can move. And there's a future where there will be no more prisons and where we will all truly be free. Do you want to experience that freedom? The one woman was like pretty jazzed about that. Cause she kind of looked like, were you saying that to like more people than me? But okay, like, yeah, like that sounds pretty good. And she promptly told us that she would invite her friends to this prison Bible study. That was the last time we ever saw that woman in the Bible study, like ever. What's interesting is that we saw her outside, like she would be going to the gym or doing other things, she's like, hey, but like we never saw her in the study. But guess what she did? She told people about the Bible study. That group went from around, wait, not around, it was just one woman, to around 60 before the correctional officers finally said, you know what, having like women like on yoga mats and like this like small room stack, like we're just gonna like kind of shut this down, like it can't be as big as this. But from one woman who said, hey, I might not come anymore, but I'm gonna tell my friends about this, this is good stuff. Like I'm not gonna be there, but they can be there. And then about 60 of her friends came. I might have been nervous that first night, but it turns out we had a story worth sharing after all. A story where prisoners can imagine and experience freedom, even while still inside a jail. A story where addictions don't take away our inherent goodness. A story where a prisoner's mistakes aren't the depth of evil that's out there. And a story where Jesus steps into the prison and doesn't demand moral perfection, but just a willing hand. This is powerful. The name of Jesus matters, but only because of the story of Jesus. The story that God has guided humanity towards. The story that Jesus walked out with love and obedience. The story that the Spirit testifies to and invites us into. Whether you're just hearing the story for the first time now, or whether you've long heard the story, do you know that we truly have a story worth sharing with anyone? With everyone. This story is not merely a religious word or relic as if we've just magically stumbled upon the right answer. It's a living, breathing story that has a wonderful beginning. A current, present reality that we're living now. And a glorious future we're being drawn into. Some might know Jesus' name. Some might know the church, for better or worse. But some of us in the church, some of us outside of the church, we don't truly know the story of God. We're in a series called Worth Sharing. Last week I talked about how there is goodness worth sharing. And that all of us, whether last week was our first time at church or whether it was our 2000th time, we have goodness that we can see is from God. 
and that we can share that authentically with others around us. We can actually share simple truths, simple stories, simple invitations. Creation is beautiful. I was blind and now I see. I found peace in Jesus. Come and see. This week I'll talk about the power of proclamation. Simply sharing a story that is true. And this story is connected to our personal story, but I kind of mean a bigger story than just our own lives. This bigger story of God and how in that we have a story that's worth sharing. I'll walk through four big parts of the story and how each part reveals something about God and us, no matter where we are on our spiritual journey. This story is powerful and it's worth sharing. For us to recognize that, to realize that, and to have our spirit witness to that, so we can know internally, yeah, I think this is something kind of worth listening to, and maybe even stepping out and sharing. I want to invite the Holy Spirit's presence here to be with us, to take away fear, to give us desire, and to give us a presence of love. So that story, it wouldn't just be a matter of words or talk, but the power of love being with us today. So please join me as we pray. God, I pray for the Holy Spirit's power to be here right now. For you, Holy Spirit, to show us what's true, to show us what's good, to show us what's lovely. God, would you do that in us? Would you do that with us here today? And God, would you invite us that we could do that through what you're doing here? we would step out and share in our own way, in our own time, but you would guide us to what it means to have a story worth sharing. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, an ancient church planner, speaks of this big story. He speaks of this big story as the gospel. In fact, Paul's so confident in this gospel, he's so uh, kind of obsessed about it that he connects his own name to it. He's like, if you want to know my name, then you're going to know about this gospel. It's as if it's connected to his identity or his personhood. It comes up in an introduction to a letter he wrote to the community of the Romans. And we can see how tied his name is to this gospel as we read this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, Paul, like my name's Josh. Hello, how are you doing? Like this isn't the meat of the letter at all. This is Paul's introduction. It's as if Paul had, like, let's say, a, a Twitter page. You know, maybe that was around then. And he's like, hey, you know, I'm at my signal, blinded by the light. You know, I'm the Paul, Jesus' servant, an apostle, set apart for the story of good news about God. I serve Jesus, you know, the Jesus of the Davidic line revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures. That Jesus that was raised, yeah, that Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like, that's who I am. Like, his identity, for some reason, is so tied to Jesus's. Like, his name is tied to who Jesus is. What's interesting here is that, like, Jesus 
did, or Paul did know Jesus' name before something like this Twitter page started or whatever the ancient version of it was, maybe the letter, I guess. He knew about this emerging radical faith community that came out of Paul's context, a Jewish context. And knowing this name, knowing this community, Paul actually hated all of it. But then there was a story. And it was a story that wasn't just told to him, it happened to him. It literally knocked him off his path. And through the aid of a fellow believer and some supernatural help, Paul began to believe this story. He began to live this story, the story of Jesus being God for us, though killed by us. And Paul's life was never the same because his story became true to him, even though he knew some of the main actors, some of the main community members before. It's almost as if it wasn't real until he encountered it. And yes, this Paul begins to share the story of the gospel of the good news. At ECV, we've talked about this big story before, the story of God. We've talked about this big story in four different parts. We've talked about it as creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. These might be unusual words or new words, words we don't use as often, but they're handholds to follow along to the story of God. I want to walk us through each part of the story today to share a scripture that just illuminates what these theological words mean and then to tell a more personal story that I've seen in my own life, not necessarily about me, but just ways I've seen God's unfolding narrative in the lives of other people that I know. I truly believe that proclaiming this story in full or part by part can change lives. It's happened to me. It's happened to many of us here. And I know that's happened to many people who were never familiar with Jesus' story until they were. In each case, it was never something that the person just had to muster up strength to do. It was like the beauty of the story won out. The beauty of the gospel and what it meant for that person rise to the top. It's not like the story of God is the only story out there. And it turns out that our other stories simply aren't beautiful, aren't as beautiful at the end of the day. Stories that we can become aware of or ones we could recognize in our own lives. Simply working harder for more. More always being better. Being a good person to feel good about ourselves. Comparing ourselves to our neighbors to make us feel better about ourselves that way. Fighting hard to live up to their standards and judging ourselves and others based on those standards. These stories make us wearier than we realize. And yet all of us, followers of Jesus or not, can actually buy into these stories. These stories that simply demand too much of us. So what's another story? What's the other story? This beautiful story, where does it start? It starts with creation. Creation, the fact that we're created for good. A world fully good, made by a God fully good, who created a people fully good. We see this creation expressed beautifully by the author of Genesis. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, 
And as we look further, we see a theme that pops up again and again in Genesis 1. God created light and saw that it was good. The earth and the seas and saw that they were good. Vegetation and fruit and saw that they were good. The sky, it was good. Great sea monsters and every living creature, every winged bird of every kind, and God saw that it was good. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God, the creator God, daring to even make the creepy, crawly things that were like, I'm not so sure, God, that that's good, declaring it good. And if that wasn't enough, we can look at the account of God creating humankind. Then God said, let us make humankind in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God creates a humanity to rule over and love and care these other good creations. Humanity and creation together as God had designed. This part of the story is important because it's foundational. And it's easy to lose sight of goodness living in a world like ours. God's goodness is not often in headlines or in news clips or in casual conversations. But God's goodness is something to recover, something that we discover. That humanity is beautiful, that creation is magnificent, that human culture is fascinating. This is an amazing reality that we get invited into to see who God is as a creator. I often get invited to speak, to, to talk about God's good creation and how it relates to ethnicity, our cultural backgrounds. And I often connect this background to one that's in Revelation, the last book of the Bible that talks about how our ethnicity is blessed. It's part of the human riches that God has like, endowed us with. And a few years ago, after I shared this at uh, kind of a workshop, a person came up to me, a young black man came up to me, and he said, this is really interesting to me. Because as you shared this about God's good creation, we we're sharing about these four different stories, four different parts of the big story. As you share that about creation, I realized something. When I got saved, that's his way of describing, like, coming to faith in Jesus. When I got saved, I thought I was saved from bad things. And to me, I thought I was saved from something like my blackness, which to other people they always saw as wrong with me. Or I saw sometimes as uh, a part of me that I was wrestling with that represented, like, uh, my background and, and where I grew up. 
And I didn't like that. So I thought God made me a new creation. Like I was saved from that. But hearing that creation is good, that my ethnicity is created for good, I realized that that actually is a good thing from God that he gave me. I don't have to be saved from my blackness. Indeed, God gave that to me as a sacred gift. When you've been told that you are something bad, all of a sudden a doctrine of creation, the reality that God's good creation is for you, it's not just is for you, but God created you in his image, becomes incredibly powerful. It's hugely empowering for people who have been damned by society. Maybe for their addictive behavior that has them looking like they don't want to look anymore. Maybe for substance abuse, the color of their skin, for lands they've come from. Their cultural background, who they love. Regardless of our own choices, good, bad, or indifferent, nothing stops creation's story fundamental truth. That humanity and the creation around us has been created by a good God. Created as good for good, and that crucially, human beings have been created in the image of God. That's a powerful story. And for some people, they haven't heard that before. Because of shame, because of guilt, they've only heard that they are bad. And all of a sudden, they can discover there's a good God who loves them, who created them for good no matter what mess they're in their lives right now, no matter what they need rescuing from, but that their origin story is good. What a powerful reality that someone can wake up to, that we can wake up to. This is the first part of our story. You might wonder how this next part, the fall, could be a helpful part of the story in terms of sharing. Is this the part we should kind of like sweep under the rug, this whole sin deal? And while it's true that this is our idea as humanity, it's not God's idea, and it's our driving part of the story, unfortunately, like always, God is at work even in the biggest mess humanity has ever made, choosing disobedience to God over God. And this story can be narrated in different ways, whether it's in the garden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by trusting a serpent's word more than their creator, but it's also throughout all of scripture. We see humanity turning away from God to something else. Paul, again, in the same letter to Romans, says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. What's worth sharing about sin? Turns out, I think, quite a bit. In college, I was a part of a very small group of Jesus followers who were doing uh, activism and also reading scripture alongside that. We were reading about God's heart for justice, God's heart for the poor, and then we were doing activism with a lot of secular groups on campus. Uh, in terms of the timeline, this was during the era of the second Bush's presidency, and a lot of people were surprised by like, the presence of Jesus followers at things like rallies against you know, uh, the war in Darfur, against bad kind of practices uh, in terms of workers' rights for Yale, uh, Yale's investment in private prisons. People were kind of like, why are you here? And we like, told them, like, well, because of God. Like, what we know to be true about God. 
And people really couldn't believe that. They were like, this is like a joke, right? Like, how could you be like on our side? We're like, um, I didn't know there were like sides here. I just thought that we were like protesting something that was bad. Like, I don't know like if we're being vetted or if we're like being allowed to be here anymore. Like what's going on? And people would kind of ask us as a joke, you know, so then I guess like you hate Yale, like with us, or like you hate Bush, like we're like, well, like there's a passage we studied like last week, it was Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, like there's actually a way that we're not against like people or, you know, organizations, like but we're against like principalities and powers. We're against these systems that are oppressive. Uh, we didn't want to say that we hated someone because we felt like that would be connected to like this whole bad thing that we're being against. For us, it was harder to dis detangle uh, personal sin and systemic oppression. I can't tell you how many good spiritual conversations we got in with people who were wondering, so how does that work? Like this kind of systemic oppression that we are clearly against, but also the choices we have, like the very real choices we have as individuals to live in a certain way. Conversations about how it was tiring to fight always against something but wondering, is there anything we could be for together? Conversations about how the church uh, had a really mixed record in fighting for justice and sharing, even sometimes quite vulnerably ourselves, about how we felt about that. These conversations didn't always or often end in agreement, but what they did is they created a kind of peace and uh, this bigger story. Stories about what it meant to be against evil Stories about how it meant to be for this capital G good, even if we didn't always have agreement about what that was, we would say it was God, and they might say, well, I don't, I'm not willing to call it that, but I guess we are like against something together, or we're going together somewhere. From the person of Adam to all of humanity, from our own individual hearts to the ills of our society, the fall is tragic, but there's a personal and systemic component to it. It orients us the fall does, to see sin and evil as separate from God. And it places us smack dab in the middle of a choice. What story do we want to participate in? And which story has more power in our lives? The clarity of the fall can spur us into action. That's what we saw in that small group, and also it's what we saw more and more in the lives of our friends that didn't even know Jesus. They were wondering, what does it mean to actually be about this work? It might be a little bit more serious than we thought. And this action is what we see in the next part of our story, modeled in the life of Jesus, the central character of our redemption arc. If God's goodness was always intended, if our fall was an aberration in God's plan, then Jesus is our forever leader, whose leadership needed to look a lot like a rescue plan, given our actions to go against God. Paul continues helping us in this letter, saying, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Continuing on, he said, For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If someone's disobedient behavior could kind of spin out into this chaotic reality, could the work of Jesus heal and cause healing in us. This is what we hope to see here at ECV. This is what we hope to see in our lives that as we give our lives to Jesus, the same things we see that mark Jesus' life, love and care and mercy and joy and justice become our story. 
as if Jesus traces over our broken lives to make something beautiful again. Jesus invites us personally to live this story out and to then give it away freely. This is part of what we see in God's story. Adam's life might tell one story, but Christ's story tells another. Just a few more stories here. When I first became uh, a pastor, I was also a ministry leader at Yale, uh, the campus fellowship. And our group was very small, uh, very ragtag. It was a strange group. I can tell you stories about it later. But we had a really amazing break where we invited a group called Strivers Row. Some of you might know who they are. It was a really um, amazing poetry group at that time. And they talked about faith and matters of faith in a very raw way. And we decided to take a big risk and to uh, pay for Yale Law School Auditorium. Um, This is not the place we usually met. We usually met in very small rooms that were still too big for our group. So to rent out the Yale Law Auditorium, which seats about 500 people, felt like just a, just a tiny step of faith. And it turns out that people really liked this poetry group. I'm not sure if it was our group, but more like the poetry group. And we had to turn away around 200 people. And it was a really powerful night. There was a poet who talked about his own background, uh, kind of the way that he would say the fall became personal to him. Stories of uh, addiction in his life, of mental health struggles, bad sexual choices, and eventually uh, this sense of what is my life really for? And then he talked about what it meant to find Jesus in the midst of all of that. And all of a sudden, the poem stopped. And people were like, wait, I thought this was like a poetry show. And then he started to sing. And he sang a song that some of you guys might know in the room called How He Loves Us which is all about God's love for us, God's deep and powerful love for us. And you know when something happens in a room and people aren't vocalizing anything, but you can just tell something is happening? That's what was happening in this space, where people felt like arrested, almost like stuck to their chair. I was like, oh, I think like somehow the story that he told that was a personal story of redemption is becoming like this corporate opportunity to let this thing be real in our lives. And then the event ended. And most people left. And I was left with one of those prayers. Okay, God, I guess just like keep doing like the good thing you're doing. But I saw actually one person didn't leave. She came forward to the front of the room. And she said, I have to talk to that poet or to you guys, like whoever you are. I don't really understand this event and who's running it. But I need to tell you something. A year ago, this same day, I tried to take my life. And hearing that poem and hearing that song has given me a sense of hope. One, that I've been alive for a year, that's something to celebrate, but also more than just my existence for a year, I'm ready to dedicate my life to something, to say that it means something, to say that this story and this song was more than a moment for me, but that God's love has become real. And that's what saved me when I tried to end my life and it didn't work. That's what's been saving me every day that I've still existed, even though I'm not sure why. And it's actually led me to this moment where I feel like I know why now. Because of Jesus and what he did, meaning something for me. This ancient person, but present spiritual activity. A historical event, but a current reality for her. 
where that thing that was in the room that we all felt was actually the Spirit of God calling people and calling her to say yes. This is a story worth sharing. It changes lives. It can change our own life. It can change the lives of other people. It reveals things that we don't even know are going on. My guess is she didn't tell that story to a lot of people, but somehow the work of Jesus allowed her to be real with strangers. The story of Jesus becoming our story is what Jesus died for. It's our current invitation. It's the act we're in. And it's a story worth sharing, absolutely worth sharing. And yet, there's more. This is our last act. This last part of the story. Oftentimes we can think, well, of course it just ends with, like, you know, the Jesus rescue story. And then our amazing lives. Well, there's something more than that. And I think it's even better than that. It's the work of consummation. And it's a strange theological word. Essentially, it's about God's kingdom becoming complete in our lives. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It ends with completion. If the story ends with Jesus' sacrifice, in some ways we just end up where we began, slowed down only by human sin and rebellion. With consummation, the story has always been going somewhere to rule and to reign with God. We, humanity, just took a slight detour on the way there. Consummation is hard to see since it's not here yet. But I see this reality when I look out at people in this crew, for sure, my friends, some of whom know Jesus, some of whom don't, and definitely people I see in society, the mystics, the futurists, the dreamers, the unsettled, the ones that always long for more. They don't always know Jesus, but they have a, a yearning that there's more than what we see. And if we look at Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it's clear that some people are set with a very conscious longing in their hearts for more. Read this with me, please. Uh, I'll, I'll read it out loud, but just uh, really be present to this, because it's something that we haven't seen, but it's coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. There are folks, Jesus followers and not, whose souls will enliven reading this. And maybe it just happened to you, this reality of no more tears, of no more death, where everything is made new. Sometimes when we tell the story of God, we just tell a few human stories, and it's as if we have a Band-Aid with a Jesus face on it. Like Jesus has come in and he's just fixed a few things. But actually in consummation we realize it's not a Band-Aid that Jesus gives us. It's a whole new body. It's a whole new heaven. It's a whole new earth. Jesus isn't just a, a Band-Aid on a dying body. 
He is king over whole, complete, and redeemed lives. This is the newness that awaits us. It can be easy, maybe, to say, Jesus rules my heart. It's much harder to live in an imaginative practice of discipleship. It says, it's not just my heart, Jesus rules, but actually everything. And Jesus is remaking everything. Let's get ready for that. Let's prepare a place for him. Let's live into new rhythms of community where God is at the center. Let's live into practices of life and divest from machinations of death. We don't see this clearly, but we can try as through a mirror dimly. At ECV and in New Haven, we've run into this a lot. This problem of yearning for more, longing for more, thinking that God is doing more than we could even think or imagine. We've even run into people where we've sensed God's spirit is on them, but they don't know the person of Jesus. People whose vision for the world in some ways might seem to challenge us, that it's more complete than our own, even though they don't know who Jesus is, the way they think about maybe how society could flourish. They challenge us with their thoughts about how they could maybe better serve the earth. They live with vulnerability and openness, with a kind of emotional health and death. They seek the peace of our entire city. Sometimes, this was an early thing I talked through a lot uh, when I was a minister at Yale, people were like confused by that. Like, how could this be so? Well, what if this part of the story is simply being drawn out? What if this part of the story is something that people are latched onto, this sense that there is more, even if they don't know the particular story of Jesus because no one shared it with them? Wouldn't it be amazing to actually talk about God and compare notes with folks like this, to find Jesus in the mess of it all. Maybe that's why some people are here at ECV doing that work, rather than kind of armoring up against folks like that and using Jesus as a battling ram when he's actually the king of the castle. This is easier said than done, but I've seen it. Revolutionaries who have entered our community and eventually desacramentalized their heroes for worship of Jesus the King. Jesus followers admitting that they haven't made Jesus Lord in huge swaths of their lives, thanking people that came from different backgrounds for teaching them, helping them, aiding them in their discipleship. Creatives declaring Jesus the most beautiful person they've ever seen, not having known him for a while, but being arrested when they finally saw him. Jesus followers repenting for ignoring the beauty that God has created. Scientists discovering new realities in the name of Jesus and realizing they can worship God with all of their mind. And Jesus followers admitting that all truth is God's truth. There remains more. And in it, we have a story worth sharing. It's a story we're sharing all the way down every single part. I want to invite you to really think about this story. In each of the four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And as you think about your life, whether you would say you live your life with Jesus, whether this is a new thing for you, to think, is that the fullness of the story that you live with? Or have you kind of accepted a Band-Aid when there's a whole new body for you? When there's a new world that God is investing in and inviting you towards? How would you say you've lived into the story? I think God's invitation is that we can start anywhere 
and make our way through it. But he does want us to truly live into the full story. I want to share some invitations as I close, and the worship team can come up. Three different invitations. In this story of God, this gospel, this gospel of God, where are you drawn? Is it the goodness of God's creation? Is it the fact that in thinking about the fall, we realize that the sin and evil that we're so easily entangled with isn't who we are, but it's what we're often attached to? What about redemption, this Jesus story, that this particular person of Jesus his obedience changes everything. This historical person, ancient, does present work in us. Or is it consummation, the fact that there's more, maybe than we ever longed for, maybe more than we have realized is really for us, not just the remaking of a few parts of our lives, but the whole world. Where are you drawn to? And can you get curious with God about that? Think about what parts of the story were you blind to? And then practice confession, saying, God, I'm so sorry, I just missed that part of your story. I didn't think about your good creation. I don't often kind of think about what that means, that you created the world good. Maybe even repentance, turning around, changing your mind, and being intentional about how you'll walk out that part of God's story. And lastly, this is the topic of the whole thing, sharing the story. With whom are you led to share the story of God? Who in your life? Is it a coworker? Is it a friend? Is it a neighbor? In addition to words, what are practices that would allow you to tell the story just as well? Some of us probably are more verbal people, we're more confident speaking. Other people you might want to say, hey, let's take a walk together in nature to see God's goodness in creation. Let's read about something that's an injustice to see how the fall has kind of these personal components, but also systemic components. Can I tell you my story of how Jesus has worked in my life? And then can we be drawn together to a bigger future and kind of a uh, way that Jesus might be remaking the world that we've never um, thought about by, by, by kind of thinking together, being together with those big questions? Think about the invitation that God has for you. As we transition to communion, I want to pray for us. We're going to have a time of worship where we can uh, invite God's presence and lift up the name of Jesus. And my hope is as we lift up the name of Jesus, there'll be a way that we fully see not just the name but the story that makes the name worth praising, that makes the name worth lifting up. When we take communion, we acknowledge Again, the, the way the story has been made real through the work of Jesus. Paul, that same church planter, says that if Jesus hadn't obeyed, if he hadn't gone to the cross, the story really isn't worth much. But Jesus did obey. He did go to the cross. He did go for the sake of love. Even though our act was to rebel, God's act was to move towards us. As we take communion, I want us to be invited into that very intense and personal work that Jesus did on the cross and ask ourselves, how is that connected to our story? And how does it open up every part of the story that we just looked at? Holy Spirit, would you come here right now?
would you let us know that you're inviting us to something bigger and deeper. You're inviting us to the gospel, the good news of God. And that good news is bigger, I think, than we've realized and imagined. God, that's great news. Invite us deeper. Invite us further. Have us cast off whatever is entangling us. Would you let the ways that we are attached to the former things and the first things be gone so we can live into the newness of your reality, Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you come in this place? Fill us with your peace. Would you fill us with your love? Would you fill us with awe that we're included in this story of God?